Hey, you're listening to TBB Talks, the podcast hosted by The British Blacklist, where we bring you conversations with creative black folk from the UK and wider diaspora. We'll be talking to up and comings, headline popping, and the legends across screen, stage, literature, and sound. And we hope to shed some insight into their lives, the careers they chose, how they stay motivated, and more importantly, how they keep sane being black in the arts and entertainment world. Thank you, sir. I'm so sorry about this, repeating it again. It's, it's all right, it's okay. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm um, okay, I'm doing all right. Um, how are you? I'm fine. It's been really busy um, getting back into the swing of things. I think the film world is, and the arts world in general is picking itself back up, which was uh-huh. to catch everything. Are you, just as a side note, is The Good Fight back in filming and stuff like that, production? I'm not on The Good Fight. I left. <laughs> um, is that an exclusive or is, is that known? I missed that. As completely known as in it was in the various trade newspapers. I left at the end of last season and um, I signed on to do something called Harlem's Kitchen, which is about a, an African-American family run restaurant in Harlem. But because of COVID, we're not sure when we were going to production. We were two days away from filming uh, the pilot episode, Mm. the first episode, when everything shut down. I had the last two remaining episodes of Good Fight to do, but then everything shut down. So so, um, Good Fight stopped after seven episodes. I'm not sure how many have aired in Europe, but I'm no longer on that. Ha, so we're behind, we haven't got, (laughs) I was watching it through other means because I'm such a fan so yeah I didn't <laughs> know that and I know a lot of people are going to be really sad such a great show but I guess we'll park that until UK catches up so um I'll go back to the five bloods so I'll start <laughs> again so of course the five bloods um such a brilliant brilliant project working with Spike because obviously this is the fourth project you've worked with him what was it like working with like reconnecting with him again in for this epic epic film it was fantastic mm-hmm. um you know, the connection that Spike and I established back in the first three films uh, was still very much in, was still very present. Um, I've said that when Spike first called me, he said some things to me on, on the phone that were uh, very touching to me and that to me was indicative of an added, um, an added, I don't know, perhaps sensitivity mm. from Spike, just in general, but certainly toward me. But the, um, the process of, of, of making the work always had in it um, this regard that Spike has always had for me. Obviously, I can understand because doing these junkets and having to repeat the same thing over and over again. However, Mm. in working with Spike, what is it about his work that makes you say yes? What enables me to say yes to Spike? Every single project that Spike has offered me, Malcolm X, Crooklyn, Clockers, and the Five Bloods, the content of the material not only is superior and connects with me culturally, creatively, which it does, Mm. 
but the fact that it is, is Spike, who has a certain way of working that I'm aware will jibe, connect with my way of working. So I'm, I'm fairly confident that in addition to the content of the material, which I connect with, that the process of making the film will be rewarding. From that standpoint, there has never been a question, but that it will be a rewarding experience working this way for me. And then so seeing your character on the page, sorry, do you, do you have an idea of whether he, when he built this character in particular, that he had you in mind or was it just, it, you fit the role? I have since found out that I was the only choice. Oh, that's... I did not know that initially. I, what I knew was that Spike really wanted me in the film. Mm. I did not know that I was his first and only choice for the part. I did know that he really, 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 really wanted me in the film. Had I known that I was the first and only choice, certainly I would have asked for more money. But, <laughs> yeah. um, <Of> course. <laughs> I found that out subsequent. I mean, and you fit the role so perfectly. So what was it about your, the role when you saw it on the script that jumped out at you and why you felt that? In the final analysis, it was my recognition mm -hmm. that it's a phenomenal, it's a large, tragic part. It's a classical part, very much in the realm of August Wilson, Shakespeare. I recognized, and this was after my third pass, my third reading of the script. Um, but I recognize really clearly that it's a monster of, of a part and I needed to play this part. Look, we could talk about the history of it, the breadth of the film. It, I think when we spoke before, I mentioned that I learned so much. I'm not a of history course. buff. I didn't take history in school or uni. So I didn't know much. I just, we always had this thing, the Vietnam War. Did you learn anything else from playing this role? Uh. About... <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I learned an immense yeah. amount. My, the fact is, my understanding, quote unquote, of the Vietnam War was similar, similarly um, general. Yeah. And throughout the process of beginning the research, I'm not sure if we spoke about this the last time, but um, I met with vets. I have two cousins who were both Vietnam vets. Mm -hmm. They were the first two vets that I spoke with and they gave me a lot of information just in terms of their own experience mm -hmm. uh, and specifically their experiences with PTSD. But then I spoke with additional vets and uh, went back and read a book called Bloods, which is edited by a man named Wallace Terry. It came out in the 70s, I believe. I read it when it first came out. I went back and read that book. Bloods is a book containing verbatim accounts mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, of probably, I don't know, between 15 and 20 African-American vets talking about their experiences in Nam. I looked at a, a short documentary called The Anderson Platoon, which features uh, a platoon leader, African-American, which was a rarity back then. I looked at a film called Hearts and Minds, which had won an Academy Award in the mid-1970s mm -hmm. about Vietnam. I looked at Ken Burns' documentarian. He has a series called Vietnam. I looked at his film. Mm -hmm. Fog of War, I believe I looked at. And I looked at additional text books. So I immersed myself in <clears throat> Vietnam culture, culture the, the, um, the, uh, the literature and the film, yeah, yeah. I can 
everything I could lay my hands on. And in that process, educated myself mm. much and, more specifically about the war. And especially coming from the African-American experience that we don't hear of. We didn't even, we don't, you don't see that soldier. You don't visualize that soldier. Exactly. That's exactly the, that's exactly the point. Yeah. And that for me is um, another, is an additional component mm. of when Spike first sent me the script that uh, this is not a story that one sees. We do not see traditionally the Vietnam experience, experience through the lens of the African-American soldiers. And more broadly, I was aware that um, just in general, right across the board, our contributions, our meaning Black soldiers, our contributions going back hundreds of years tend to be either marginalized or expurgated altogether. And I would also say that Caribbean soldiers yeah. who fought the British, yeah. World, War, World War I, World War II, et yeah. cetera. Similarly, it's a disappearing, it's a disappearing of, it's an expurgating of. So the additional component that existed for me with Bloods was that we were to be front and center in the telling of this story, which of course I recognized as a majorly, majorly important component. And it would serve, and it has served as what I call a historical corrective. Absolutely. And I was going to ask you about identity. You, you kind of touched on it with um, Caribbean story over here, Caribbean and African story. So I was going to bring that back to identity because of what we're going through now with the outpouring and the outrage and the, the time to speak up and set the world to rights when it comes to black history in America, in the UK. How are you finding this, I, I don't know if it's a word is rebirth, but this resurgence of vocalizing our identity and our importance and our staking our mark in the ground for our history. Someone likes mm -hmm. like controlling the narrative of our history, that's, this is important. But how have you mm -hmm. identified yourself in America, but as a British, born Caribbean heritage mm -hmm. man, even though it's been a long time since you've made all it here. Right. So, all of it is, is, is resonating very positively sure. for me, Akua, um, for all of the reasons that you just articulated. Mm. And broadly speaking, you know, as an African descended person, as somebody born in the UK of Jamaican uh, extraction, all of these things, all of these, I, I don't, yeah, okay, I'll call them correctives, resonate very strongly for me, but I hope it's not a trend. Yeah. I don't want it to be a trend, but rather I want it to be the beginning of an actual paradigm shift mm. in terms of recognition, not only recognition of our contributions, but that it's a paradigm shift and the beginning of a process where more of these kinds of stories can be told. I am not naive about the entertainment industry. I'm not naive about the world that we live in. So it will remain to be seen as to whether it does create this paradigm shift that I'm speaking about. But that would be wonderful if that proves to be the case. And I think that okay. on some level, the onus is on us. Yes, I hear you to be proactive yep. in these processes. However, I understand 
in saying that, I, I'm, I'm acutely aware that we don't control the means of production. Therefore, it's not as if you or I can go out and go out and say, okay, I want to make a film about this and get that film made. Even in the literary world, yes. right? When it comes to writing, the writing of books, uh, we don't control that either, mm. right? So I'm saying that we have to be proactive with the awareness of some of the challenges that we as people of color face in terms of getting our narratives, getting our stories out there. Your question, this period is, is resonating for me for all the reasons that you mentioned. I hope that it, it will result in a paradigm shift and or a recognition from European people, white people, that they will also become proactive yeah. in assisting. Yes. One thing I'll say to you, um, somebody just sent me, I'm sure you saw it, Somebody just sent me a, a, a clip of Prince Charles. I, I guess on some level he was apologizing and recognizing and acknowledging the debt of gratitude that is owed to the Windrush generation. And, it, you know, it was interesting to watch that and to, it was encouraging. But at this point, perhaps because I'm a scorp, I, I don't know. I tend to be... Is it cynical? I'll say this. I'm, I'm not naive about the world. Right. So on the one hand, acknowledging that that's significant, that mm -hmm. Prince Charles would say the things he was saying, oftentimes there is a but for me. And the but is, what does this mean in the final analysis? Exactly. This is fantastic. This is wonderful. But to what extent will it help elicit engender change yeah it's testament to what you said about the industry being effective listening to what we're saying it's the same as the establishment so there's an element of cynicism and skepticism about when they make these statements it's, it's will you guys do something different because it's in your hands we'll do what you we know can. what um it's in it's in their hands ish ish yeah and I, and I say that because giving over the ultimate responsibility to them and saying it's in your hands is probably a recipe for disappointment and disaster. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, their role in this part, but not... But they, but they do have they do have a role, but we do too, and, yeah. and we also have to, to step up. Yeah, I agree. But it's extremely, um, it's nuanced. Mm -hmm. It's deeply nuanced because in the final analysis, we do not control the means of production. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of, for us as people of color, negotiating just that dynamic, yeah. the fact that we do not control the means of production becomes then a tricky proposition. But here's the thing, here's the thing in final analysis. I think we are all clear about the job of work that need to be done. Yeah. We're clear about the situation as it exists. We're clear about what needs to be addressed and or changed. And we, we certainly have enough brilliantly creative, amazingly talented people of color, practitioners of color, creative workers to be able to address those things. Absolutely. So on some level, there are pieces in, in place. There are components that exist 
that the process then becomes how will we utilize yeah. all of those well, things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for the benefit of telling the narratives that we all know need to be told. I 100% agree. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I appreciate your time again. Thank you, Akua, and all the very best to you. Take and care. And you too, sir. Thank you so much.